Conclusion My contribution to the religious history of England in the 1700s is now concluded. I have nearly exhausted the list of leading ministers who were the spiritual reformers of our land in the 18th century. I do not deny that there were other great and good men beside the eleven whom I have selected. I only say that there were none equal to them in public usefulness. There were other laborers in the gospel field of England whose record is on high, but they attained not to the first eleven. First Chronicles 11.25 In compiling these biographies I am very sensible of many deficiencies. I know they could have been made larger, but I cannot forget that we do not live in a reading age, and that great books are great evils. I know they could have been better written, but I hope the reader and listener will remember that their preparation has been carried on under immense difficulties, and under the daily pressure of other ministerial duties. At any rate, I have the satisfaction of feeling that this volume contains an abundance of facts that have never been brought together before, and throws light on some points in English church history that have never yet been properly understood. There are a few general statistics about my eleven heroes that deserve notice and that we might possibly overlook when reading or listening to their lives individually. However, when viewed together and as a group, they will probably be thought interesting. For one thing, each of the eleven leading ministers in the revival of the eighteenth century was an ordained clergyman of the Church of England. This is a fact that should not be overlooked. I am not what is called a high churchman. I do not hold the divine right of episcopacy that bishops are the successors of the apostles. I desire to regard all ministers who love Christ and preach the truth as my brethren. But still, honor should be given where honor is due. Romans 13, 7. It is a total mistake to suppose, as many do, that English religion a hundred years ago was revived by dissenters. Nothing of the kind. The men who did the mighty work of that day and who plucked Christianity out of the dust were all clergymen of the Church of England. Clergymen of whom the Church was unworthy, but still clergymen as really and truly as George Herbert or Andrews or Bull. Let that fact never be forgotten. It would have been good for the Church of England if she had more children like Rowlands and Berridge, and fewer like Lord. For another thing, the majority of the leaders of the revival of English religion in the eighteenth century were university men. Five of them, Wesley, Whitefield, Romaine, Hervey, and Walker, earned their degrees at Oxford. Three of them, Grimshaw, Berridge, and Venn, earned their degrees at Cambridge. Toplady was educated at Trinity College, Dublin. Rowlands and Fletcher were the only two who did not attend any university. Let this fact also be carefully remembered. The common notion that the men who turned England upside down during the eighteenth century were mere commonplace, illiterate, simple, uneducated fanatics is a senseless mistake. So far from this being the case, the eleven clergymen described in this volume were in all probability better read and had more knowledge than most ministers of their day. For another thing, the majority of the eleven clergymen who led the revival of the eighteenth century were married men. Of the four who never married, three, Hervey, Toplady, and Walker, died of consumption at a comparatively early age. 
The most renowned of the eleven who died unmarried was John Berridge, and he, we have seen, was so quaint that he was always unlike other men. This fact is one that should not be overlooked. In a day when celibacy is held up to admiration as the grand secret of exalted spirituality, it is worth remembering that devoted servants of God like Grimshaw, Rollins, Venn, and Romaine could walk with God like Enoch, and yet, like Enoch, live according to God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony. The minister who has no sons and daughters of his own suffers immense loss in the study of human nature. Practical Lessons It only remains for me now to point out a few practical lessons that seem to flow naturally from the biographies that fill the pages of this book. These are lessons that are strongly impressed on my own mind. I would be thankful if I could impress them on the minds of others. 1. What is the proper means for doing good in the present day? Evil is around us and upon us on every side. There is evil from Roman Catholicism, evil from unbelief, evil from liberalism, evil from new doctrines, evil amid the working classes, and evil amid the educated bodies. What is the true remedy for the disease? What is the weapon to be wielded if we will meet the enemy? Can anything be done? Is there no hope? I answer boldly that the true remedy for all the evils of our day is the same remedy that proved effective a hundred years ago. The weapon is the same pure, unadulterated doctrine that the men of whom I have been writing used to preach, and the same kind of preachers. I am bold to say that we don't need anything new. We don't need any new systems, new schools of teaching, new theology, new ceremonies, or new gospel. We don't need anything except the old truths accurately preached and properly brought home to consciences, minds, and wills. The evangelical system of theology revived England in the 1700s, and I have faith to believe that it can revive it again. There has never been good done in the world except by the faithful preaching of evangelical truth. From the days of the apostles down to this time, there have been no victories won and no spiritual successes obtained except by the doctrines that brought deliverance a hundred years ago. Where are the conquests of liberal religion and new doctrines over heathenism, irreligion, and immorality? Where are the nations they have Christianized, the communities they have evangelized, and the towns they have turned from darkness to light? You can rightly ask where. You will get no answer. The good that has been done in the world, however small, has always been done by evangelical doctrines, and if men who are not called evangelical have had successes, they have had them by using evangelical weapons. They have plowed with our heifer, Judges 14, 18 or they would never have had any harvest to show at all. I repeat it forcefully, for I believe it sincerely. The first need of our day is a return to the old, simple, and clear doctrines of our fathers in the eighteenth century. The second need is a generation of like-minded and like-gifted men to preach them. Give me in any land a man like Grimshaw, or Rollins, or Whitefield, and there is nothing in the present day that would make me afraid. I confidently believe that in the face of such men and such preaching, ritualism, liberalism, and unbelief 
would be paralyzed and wither away. 2. Why are the ministers who profess to follow the evangelical fathers of the eighteenth century so much less successful than they were? The question is a delicate and interesting one, and should not be dismissed. The suspicion naturally crosses some minds that the doctrines that won victories in the past are worn out and have lost their power. I believe that theory to be an entire mistake. The answer that I give to the question is completely different. I am compelled to plainly say that in my judgment we have among us neither the men nor the doctrines of the previous days. We do not have men who preach with such distinct power as Whitefield or Rowlands. We do not have men who come up to the level of Grimshaw, Walker, Venn, and Fletcher in self-denial, single-mindedness, diligence, holy boldness, and unworldliness. This is a humbling conclusion, but I have long believed that it is the truth. We lack both the men and the message of the eighteenth century. It's no wonder if we don't see their results. Give us similar men and a similar message, and I am certain that the Holy Spirit would give us similar results. In what ways do today's evangelical Christians fall short of their great predecessors of the eighteenth century? Let us look this question directly in the face. Let us be specific. They fall short in doctrine. Today's Christians are not as absolute, definite, bold, or uncompromising. They are afraid of strong statements. They are too ready to sit on the fence and shield and soften all their teaching, as if Christ's gospel was a little baby and could not be trusted to walk alone. They fall short as preachers. They don't have the passion, fire, understanding, explanation, directness, holy boldness, or simplicity of language that characterized the eighteenth century. Above all, they fall short in life. They are not men of one thing. They are not separate from the world, unmistakable men of God, ministers of Christ everywhere, indifferent to man's opinion, regardless of who is offended if they only preach truth and always about their father's business, as Grimshaw and Fletcher used to be. They don't make the world feel that a prophet is among them, and carry about with them their master's presence as Moses when he came down from the mount. I write these things with sorrow. I must take my full share of blame, but I do believe I am speaking the truth. It's no use trying to avoid the truth on this subject. I fear that, as a general rule, the evangelical ministry in England has fallen far below the standard of the eighteenth century. The simple explanation of the lack of success to which so many point is the low standard both of doctrine and life that prevails. Ease and popularity and the absence of persecution are disastrous to some. Political involvement takes the vitality out of others. An extravagant and excessive attention to the petty details of parish machinery withers up the ministry of some. Foolishly striving for the reputation of being considered intellectual and original is the curse of others. A desire to seem nice and progressive and get along with everybody paralyzes the ministry of still others. The plague is everywhere. We need a revival among evangelical ministers. Once the evangelical ministry of England returns to the ways of these men of the eighteenth century, I firmly believe we would have as much success as before.
We are where we are because we have fallen short of our fathers. 3. What then should we do? I answer confidently that there are three things that would be good for us to remember if we want our work to prosper. First, let us resolve to cast in our lot boldly on the side of what I must call evangelical Christianity. Let's not be moved by the ridicule and contempt that are poured on it in some quarters. Let's cling to it, grasp it firmly, and never let it go. Let's beware of the persuasive leniency that says, All sincere men hold the truth, no sincere man can be wrong. Let's beware of the idolatry of intellect that says, A man cannot make mistakes in doctrine if he is an intelligent man. Let's beware of both these dangers. Let's firmly grab hold of evangelical Christianity as the truth of God and never be ashamed to confess it. Let's stand by it, and it will stand by us in the hour of sickness and on the bed of death, in the floods of Jordan, and in the day of judgment. Next, let's resolve to work earnestly for evangelical truth, each in his own place. There's always work for everyone before his own door. Let's never stand still because we are in a minority. So what if we stand alone in a place of employment, in a financial institution, in a military unit, on a ship, or alone in a family? What of it? Let's think of the little group that shook England one hundred years ago and work on. It's truth, not numbers, that will always prevail in the end. The three hundred at Thermopylae were better than the million Persians. A small minority of evangelical Christians with the gospel in their hearts is stronger than a host of servants of the Pope, the devil, and the world. Last, let us pray as well as work. Let us pray night and day that God would revive His work in our land and raise up many more instruments to do His will. Let us pray with the abiding thought that God's arm is not shortened. Isaiah 59, 1 what He has done before, He can do again. The same God who worked so mightily for England one hundred years ago can do greater things still. Let us ask Him who holds the stars in His right hand to revive His work among our ministers and raise up men for our times. He can do it. He is willing to do it. He waits for us to plead with Him. Let all who pray, Cry out night and day to the Lord of the harvest, as instructed by our Lord in Matthew 9:38. Lord, send forth more laborers into your harvest.